three, two, one. Let's, Let's go! go! Nice. I'm the host of the PB Podcast, Troy Tittlemeyer, and this is officially the first episode from the river of San Antonio for the PB Podcast. We are in this office space here. I got in touch with the South Texas Geological Society, which is a society you should absolutely sign up for because there's bulletins every month. The people that run that and the people that go to these conventions for the South Texas Geological Society, the events, the dinners, the happy hours, these are the people and I think the generation that are going to sustain the oil and gas production in South Texas and help uh, sustain the energy demand that we uh, have in front of us. And Marky e. Thompson, sir, I don't have your bio. I didn't read a bio before this, but what I do know is that, you know, over 40 years experience starting from the trees of Wisconsin <laughs> to Dallas, right, uh, to, to working offshore Suriname, that story of the shallow waters of Suriname, and then up to Raton, the mountains of northeast New Mexico, to the shallow oil fields and the serpentine story that's going all along the Balcones region and this fault region from Austin down across San Antonio. This, this, this story that's developed here uh, in the rocks, right? The story of the rocks of this area and you drilling into those and doing the stratigraphy and writing that bulletin to the South Texas Geologic Society. It was an honor to sit down with you and, uh, and I really enjoyed this podcast. The pleasure was all mine, for sure. The, uh, the the major dropouts for me, I think, from this show, and, and I learned a lot from you, is, is one, we got to really dive into the geology of the serpentines and this age range that you revised with that bulletin and the uh, observations you've made in the subsurface that clearly disrupt the technical age dates that the UT Dallas was putting out there and that work, you know, uh, really combining that, integrating these two, uh, data sets to better understand the breakup of Pangaea and how maybe the peridotites that are coming from the deep, this super alkaline rich peridotite that's being hydrogenated along the way, maybe there's another a deeper connection that that could be a potential source for a lot of oil and gas out here. It could be. It could be. The geologic uh, history and, and what we know about that process is saying it's possible and what's exciting to me about that is I wonder how many more opportunities might be out there if you have a geolo new geologic model that's pinpointing these serpentines as a source of the petroleum. I'm not wondering if there's more shallow fields like the, the famous Luling field or something like that that does still exist out there that we can go find. I, uh, I would be most interested to uh, to learn or, or hear from anyone doing research into the uh, possibility of oil being sourced from yeah. some of these uh, deep ultramafic rocks. That's yeah. that's a new idea and a new concept uh, that uh, I'm not familiar with, yeah. but um, would uh, would love to hear more if if there is such documentation yeah absolutely absolutely we uh we did a big webinar series through magma kim uh there's 15 hours of webinars and over 500 pages of references of you know finding carrageen and serpentinites and find you know finding that there's the that carrageen story is a very deep story and it, we found it on mars we find it on uh meteorites you know carrageen's in the universe it's it's a very interesting data point to start following through the geologic rock record and so we did that uh and pbe is certainly pursuing as much as we can south texas geology and 
and trying to make discoveries. We want to sit down with people like Mark E. Thompson, who are who've seen so much of this, and you have so much information to contribute. Uh, one of the things I'd like to to try to talk to you is is on kind of getting into your library specifically on the serpentines, and maybe if we can build a what we would call a digital library on the website of Mark E. Thompson's contributions to the serpentine story. And, and we can have a writer that sits down and compiles a lot of your data that you've, you've compiled and that you have, and we can store it on the website. Uh, maybe do something like that. Well, that's certain. That's certainly something that, uh, I'd, I'd be more than willing to sit down and discuss uh, how we might be able to arrange something wow. like that. Great. Um, there is there is some ongoing uh, research into the uh, serpentine uh, Balcones igneous province uh, rocks uh, in um, by the Bureau of Economic Geology yeah. right now. Yeah. And uh, there's they're they're starting they're doing a new project compared to uh, both uh, um, uh, Dr. Robert Reed and um, um, Professor uh, Bob Lauks are, are oh, okay. both involved in a, uh, a research project on, on these rocks, and I commend them both for, for doing a really yeah. good work and, and putting out some fine recent publications on the subject. I commend you for doing these podcasts. Uh, it's a, a, a great way to uh, have... Um, you know, get new ideas out or to, or to people that aren't familiar with, with some of this. And, yeah. and uh, what a wonderful idea you've come up with uh, to do these. Right so. on. This episode is brought to you by Trunkline. You probably know Trunkline as the company that makes the legendary oil field horizontal drilling socks. And it's true. Our drill baby drill socks featuring a heel to toe wellbore are 100% American made and are designed right in the heart of the oil and gas industry. But did you know that Trunkline is also a revolutionary digital marketing tool that can transform the way you advertise your oil field services? For only $800 a month, you can showcase your company's project track record on Trunkline and our automated platform will boost your exposure through social media, email marketing, SEO, and more. Now, whenever one of your new customers asks you, can you show me an example of your work? You can simply turn them to your Trunkline portfolio. It's more effective than a brochure, it's less expensive than sponsoring a whole other golf course, and easier than maintaining your website. Join more than 200 service companies on Trunkline by signing up at register.trunkline.com today. Let's go. Mr. Thompson, this is now the conception part of the PBE podcast. And what the conception part of the PBE podcast means is I get to sit back and just listen to your story. I get to hear, you know, where it all began, the love for rocks. How did Mark E. Thompson become the legendary Mark E. Thompson of San Antonio geology? How does it go? How's your story go? I might start by saying that I've been a, a professional geologist for 45 years and that I have met very, very few geologists that started college with the idea that they were going to become geologists. Uh, it's one of those subjects or professions that 
we fall into unexpectedly <laughs> and uh, we get captured along the way. Usually uh, it's a scenario where, okay, I, I have to take some sort of science elective here as part of the yeah. beginning, uh, you know, freshman, sophomore cycle in um, undergraduate That's school. Right. And, and then uh, you try the or geology 101 or physical geology, whatever it's called. That's right. And you kind of say, you know, that was kind of interesting. You know, that was, that was all right. And so and where did you go to school? Where were you doing this? I was raised in a small little town in, in southern Wisconsin. Wow. And so I, I attended one of the state uh, universities, uh, University of Wisconsin at Oshkosh. Huh. Is uh, that it's, the it's, sim the it's similar to uh, the state of Texas where there's a system, uh, ah. you know, the University of Texas system that has all these various uh, uh, campuses and, and uh, branches across the state. Well, Wisconsin is set up the same way with uh, the, the main universities in Madison. Uh, okay. UW-Madison, and then there's... Uh, a dozen different uh, state schools within the system at uh, various, okay. and and Oshkosh was one. It's, uh, I think it was twelve thousand students at that time when I was there wow. in the seventies, nineteen seventies. Nineteen seventies. Your early your, early nineteen seventies. You were getting your undergrad. That's exactly right. Wow. And uh, so I fell into geology there. Uh, I took the second course, uh, you know, historical, and then. That was it. I was in. You were and, hooked. Yeah. And, now, uh, you didn't have any geology uh, or science, mom and dad, uncles, you know, that, that kind of hooked you in on that? Nothing that I could really say for certain. Uh, my grandfather was an uh, uh, underground mining oh, wow. uh, foreman uh, for uh, C&H uh, Copper Company in, out of uh, the UP of Michigan. Uh, he, so he, he was a foreman and... Uh, underground mining there's a big Any copper else? deposit up there in michigan uh native copper oh, wow. huge deposits uh and that uh, there there was a time these were the deepest mines in uh in north america i mean they and, were they were going down a mile oh so these are shaft gosh, mines this, shaft, and uh, your grandpa was going and my yeah my he had uh, he was from England, uh, Cornwall, which is, of course, is the the well-known mining area of, of England. Okay. Uh, the tin mine, especially the, the tin mining industry there, and, and then he he learned the mining trade in uh, in South Africa, which um, uh, of course this was you know the um, the early 1900s, uh, the 1910s, and uh, the, the, the time period going. just before the First World War. And, uh, oh and at God. that time, South Africa was a British colony. Ah. And so the, the, um, the, the gold mining, and so then, and he end, ended up um, emigrating to um, the United States then wow. and, and ended up in northern Michigan. Did he fight in World War I? Uh, he did not. Um, okay. The gold mining industry was a, extremely valuable to the war effort, yeah. and so he would have been exempt from that standpoint because okay. they needed 
Right. Uh, they were they needed the income right. from from the gold. Right. Now he was uh, more of an engineer then. He figured out ways to cut the rock out and build a shaft into the rock. That was kind of his, his well, role. Well, yes, but he was also he was a, a foreman uh, uh, underground and uh, would have, was in charge of uh, a large number of uh, laborers under you know underground. Um, you remember it, him? I do. Yes, oh. uh, uh, very, very much so. I was still a, a young boy, but that was uh, Grandpa, and uh, going. I, I remember talking to him and having stories and uh, fingers tough as nails, yeah, kind of guy. All right. I mean, um, yeah, yeah, a definite strong influence on uh, on me and my work ethic. Wow. Uh, standpoint wow. and and so your dad is your dad's dad or your mom's dad that was my mother's dad mother's dad okay right on okay and uh then um so i ended up getting a bachelor's degree in in geology from uh, wisconsin oshkosh yeah and the the very first job that i had as a professional geologist was in the mining industry ah. with uh, Noranda Exploration, which is a large mining company, Canadian mining company. Ah, and this was as an exploration geologist and uh, looking for massive sulfide deposits in the Lake Superior area. Uh, Whoa, spe- in Lake specifically, Superior. yeah, this uh, specifically uh, zinc and uh, copper, uh, lead. Now, what were you using, like, uh, like to do the exploration? I mean, obviously, boots on the ground back then. There it was right. These were, these were deposits. Uh, of course, this is all Precambrian rock, um, in northern Wisconsin, right on the southern uh, shore of Lake Superior. And, wow. Um, the this is Precambrian uh, volcanic rocks uh, okay. and uh, pyroclastic rocks, and that. Uh, green schist faces and it's it's oh, all wow. been um tilted to where the beds are all standing vertical wow and the only overburden is the glacial till <laughs> that is there so it conceivably was possible for as you're walking uh lines there was a, a grid of series of lines that were set out where they had done geophysics, which okay. was the primary exploration tool. And uh, uh, the main geophysical method in use at that time, again, this is uh, the early 1970s, was IP, or induced polarization. Induced polarization. Uh, and they were looking for the, um, uh, the ore body that would be conductive, okay. for uh, electrically conductive and uh, versus the the host rock or country rock. So the the IP line, uh, I'm not too familiar with that. What's the source for IP? Is it an electric? Charge? Yeah, it's, it's electric charges. That so there's are, a generator are, are, that gets it, brought out. Um, yeah, it's they're they're putting in electrical pulses down down uh, cables that are laid out on, on okay. lines, and so there's a there's a surveyed grid. And, and as, as the uh, exploration geologists, what we were doing was walking these grid lines. And this is, this is pretty uh, rough country, um, you know, uh, north woods um, <laughs> and cranberry bogs and, you know, oh, pretty man. rough stuff. And it was, it was, you'd come across an, an outcrop 
that might be the size of a billiard table that's sticking up through the glacial till. Oh my gosh. And within this billiard table sized outcrop, there would be five different igneous units. Oh my you know, gosh. I mean, this is real complex um, wow. um, Precambrian um, um, uh, volcanic uh, stuff. And, but it was not inconceivable that there could be one of these metallic massive sulfide bodies actually present at the surface, sticking up as you were walking through. Because the, um, hmm. when, the, when the glacier had, the last glaciers had come through, they, of course they had scraped the bedrock totally clean. And so therefore these uh, ore bodies would have been exposed right. at the surface. And then as the glaciers retreated and left all the, uh, the till and the moraines and, and whatnot, then it got covered. But, uh, Sheesh. So and, you were uh, shooting IP through the till. Right. Into the ore in, body. Into, into the, 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 or the post volcan- rock, yeah, right, the country the rock, and country then looking rock. and then trying to pick these things up. All right, so you got, and, a, you got a line of sources, electrical pulses are, are going into the ground, and then you have some kind of receivers? That exactly, are, then there's receivers. Okay. And uh, this is, um, uh, then the geophysicists that are, are doing that, are, are running that program, that I was not involved in the actual um, data acquisition or the interpretation of the geophysical data that was being done by you know professionals yeah. in in that field but the uh, charge would go off the idea is pretty simple though the, the electro, elect, electrical charge goes off goes into the rocks and if it if a if a lot of that comes back then it's not conductive is that the idea or yeah, if a lot it's, comes it's back going it is. to you're you're going to see a change in the uh, resistivity and con- or conductivity of of the rock is it's if you have a metallic ore body okay and just because it's so much more um, conductive conductive and they they can pick this up then and and then you then go in uh and you drill you wow. drill the anomalies yeah. you know you pick you see an anomaly and yep. then you set up uh, drilling and you you drill and you core to, to see what's Were there. Were you able to do that? You went from exploration uh, to... Yeah, I, I was out on, on one of the cores and I've seen uh, core coming out that is coring one of these sulfide bodies. And you hit. They, you, they, you, there actually had been three uh, discoveries in the early 1970s. Um, uh, one, uh, a, a relatively small one that from was discovered by Naranda, and then there was another small one uh, that over by Ladysmith, Wisconsin, and Exxon Minerals had just discovered the the when I was there working had just discovered a huge deposit called the Crandon deposit, and at the time I remember when they made the announcement that this was. Uh, they estimated it to be a little over 60 million tons of sulfide ore, and it was it was running about five percent zinc. Oh, wow. uh, which, so this was a huge deposit. One one of the at that time one of the top five deposits in the world. Holy cow! And so this was you know world class yeah. deposit and. I also had the um, opportunity to 
be a witness to the beginnings of uh, the anti-mining movement that was coming into play. And of those three sulfides discoveries that took place when I was, the brief time I was in the mining mm -hmm. industry, none of them were ever mined, including, including the huge world-class deposit discovered by Exxon Minerals because of the resistance to the environmental resistance to the mining. Now you the would have you see what what was required is that you've got these this large ore body right near the surface. I mean, the amount of the only overburden is the glacial yeah. till, yeah. and so you're talking fifty to a hundred feet yeah. of unconsolidated sand over yeah. the top of the thing. So it's it's not like there's well, this huge, yeah. or it's not a half mile of bedrock you got to go through, you know. But but. You were going to have to scrape all of that off and do an open pit. Yeah. And because it's a sulfide deposit, what was required was the construction of that nasty word called a smelter. Ah. And that was the rallying point of uh, the anti-mining environmental oh, no. people is... They had this picture of a um, giant smokestack with yep. a Sudbury-type picture where there's nothing growing for 10 miles, oh you know, and, just, and they, were, they were able to successfully use uh, portrayals like that hmm. to persuade the uh, state legislature in, in Madison, which, um, you know, was controlling the activities within the state and, um, wow. uh, and stop the stop the entire effort and eventually after putting up a, a long fight um, the mining companies all just left gave, gave and, up. and those and those deposits still remain in place wow now it's a massive uh, zinc or mo mostly zinc uh, for the economic value of these these ore bodies up there it's primarily for zinc. It's, uh, well, there's uh, there are massive sulfide deposits, and uh, this that particular one that Exxon had found was uh, the predominant uh, uh, mineral was zinc. But uh, they there's zinc, uh, copper, yeah, uh, lead, and then uh, minor amounts of silver and gold, or, or you know, yeah. so it's a mixture of a whole variety of uh, metallic. Uh, elements yeah. that all bound up within the sulfides and of course it's the sulfide that causes the trouble because uh, to separate it out um, you've got to smelt it right so yeah byproduct is is some yeah. kind of gases is that the problem it makes some kind of sulfur <sighs> well there's there's ways to do that now to where it's you don't have the environmental disaster that took place 200 years ago when they, you know, when they did these things. In other words, the Exxon was, they weren't going to go out and devastate the countryside, but yeah. there was, the people that were against it were able to portray it that way and, and stop the mining effort. What's the story on Exxon mining? I haven't heard, I haven't heard that before. They had a mining uh, sector, huh? Well, most, uh, many really large, 
uh, oil and gas exploration companies, uh, at least at that time period, also had uh, mining, you know, a branch of the yeah. company. And, of course, uh, Exxon was, you know, a gigantic corporation, and they had they had uh, divisions for this and that, and one yeah. of them was a mining division. Wow. And, uh, and yeah. they, was, uh, they had their hands in coal deposits and, wow. and forestry and i mean just lots of different wow. things and it wasn't just exxon I mean, a lot of yeah. companies did now exxon still doesn't have a mining division do they, they you know i don't even know uh i was my time spent in the mining industry was very limited um uh, I, I, shortly uh after this was what 1975 or so mm -hmm. and i could see at that time that the the mining industry was probably not the most lucrative place to go if you yeah. were a geologist and just prior to that in 1973 had occurred the first arab oil embargo in 73 in 1973 so. and of course here i am uh, getting out of school in 19 with a geology degree in 1975 with kind of with a hard rock emphasis what and, was your take on the embargo at the time what was the whole idea behind that well it was uh the uh, arab countries were uh, banding together to form opec i mean oh, that was the beginnings of a uh, oil producing cartel and um, prior to to that the uh, the large um, international oil companies um, at one time called the seven sisters i mean they controlled the the oil industry within uh, saudi arabia and iraq and whatnot so it was they the Arab countries were uh, doing essentially a nationalization of of their oil industry, yeah. and um, and what they decided to do was, to, in order to raise price, was we're going to um, you know cut back the yeah. production and uh, and put an uh, in, in embargo or reduce their sales, and to show the world that. Um, the power they had wow. and that was successful of course that was the first oil embargo and um, so prices went from in mid uh, early 70s to late 70s or how, how long did it how you know, fast I, did that you're happen? gonna I don't think I can quote the exact dollar per barrel price I, I remember there though just just prior to that um, Paying thirty-five cents a gallon for gasoline. Okay. Yeah, I mean this. This was when I was in college. Yeah. I mean thirty-five cents a gallon. And Man, of course, were you driving like a seventy-three Peno? What were you uh, driving? I wasn't. No, I was. That was way above my my <laughs> level at that time. I mean, I'm honest with you. I, the, I was driving a 1950. Whoa. A 1950 uh, right Chevrolet. Uh, right. Uh, yes. Oh, wow. So. Uh, uh, 
but um, and I was happy with that. Oh so, heck yeah! Yeah, I mean, well, when I, I, I mean, it was only a twenty-year-old car. That's <laughs> and I was. I, I mean, I'm a poor college student. You're, oh, yeah. You know that you do. Yeah. You get by with what you got. Ah, my first car was a '73 Penta. That's yeah. why I said it. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah well, I I did move on from uh, from the. Um, 1950. The then the, the next car I got was a 1964 Impala, oh, which uh, you know, nice. of course, I was you know absolutely in heaven with uh, nice. with that black Impala. It was it was dark green. Ooh, yeah, I like that serpentine green. Yeah, dark dark green. It was right, a, it was huh? a gorgeous car. Of wow. course, I, of course, I wish I had that back at at this time. Oh, I bet. Anyway, I bet. Uh, but so. Uh, this I decided. I decided that the maybe the mining industry was not such a uh, a good direction to go, and sure. and with the oil embargo, uh, I I retired from mining and um, went to went back to school. Uh, ah. I went to um, graduate school at uh, in Milwaukee at uh, the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee, wow. and they had. Uh, uh, a uh, emphasis in petroleum at, oh, nice. uh, within the uh, geology department, and so I, I began um, to totally switch from hard rock over to uh, petroleum level courses. Right, and um, a, a number of the professors there at that time were ex oil industry people okay. so uh, that was the connection. Even though you don't think of Milwaukee as being a, no. exactly a, a hub of I was uh, just going to ask. Yeah, like, no, but they, it was it was because they, they a number of the professors were had worked within the oil industry oh, wow. and they had connections then. Wow. And when you were getting your your graduate degree, do you remember the areas of the country that were like really prolific in oil and gas production? I mean, the Permian Basin back then was you remember hearing about the Permian or West Coast California and, and Bakersfield or you remember what what parts of the countries seemed to be just really producing a lot of energy for the country at that time? Actually, I do not. Um, I I was in graduate school, learning, still learning the basic concepts yeah. of geology, and uh, I, I knew that uh, I wanted to get into the petroleum field so i was taking courses in petroleum geology mm -hmm. but as far as the the reality of what was going on um that was far away yeah. it yeah. just you know was not a, a concern of yeah. mine at all yeah. and um uh, i was about uh, to receive some uh, rude awakenings in the in the near future coming when i, I left school and, and started. Because um, this is going to be in the 80s? Early this, 80s. No, this was, uh, so I, I got um, uh, a master's degree in, in geology in 1977. Okay, end of the 70s. And we, all of us had multiple job offers uh, from oil companies. Wow. I mean, we all did. And yeah. it was, okay, who do you want to go to work for and where? And uh, and I ended up accepting a job uh, in Dallas. Um, I'd never been to Texas before. Is so, that right? No, no, what the absolutely. Heck? No, and so um, 
I'd never seen an oil well before, you know. Well, <laughs> well I mean, you know, yeah, it isn't you, like they're really abundant in Wisconsin. No, you know? right. So, Maybe the Michigan Basin is the closest well, Right, place but that's on the other side of Lake Michigan, <laughs> you know. So. Yeah, and the Fitzgeralds, uh, the yeah, crash the Fitzgeralds uh, so, probably got And the scared. only drilling rigs I'd ever seen were the ones that were drilling for massive sulfide ore, yeah. so to- totally different situation. There, um, you know, the uh, the derrick is at a forty five degree <laughs> angle. So, <laughs> anyway, wow, yeah, yeah, you're only going maybe a thousand feet or something. Oh, right? yeah, well, this were, they were going, you know, five hundred, five hundred feet. Because uh, yeah. I mean, the deposits were right there at the surface, yeah, yeah. and you know, and then they went down um, five six hundred feet or so. Man, and now yeah. we're ten thousand feet, you know, yeah, in the Permian oh, yeah, Basin yeah. or, oh, or yeah. Austin Chalk but, Eagleford. So, but. Uh, and then, of course, uh, um, that was in 77. And then the, the second oil embargo then was in 1979. So that, I was just in time for that. And, and it was boom time in the, wow. in the oil business right as I was starting out. Wow. It's probably, in, in hindsight, uh, that was um, not exactly the best way to go because you then you think, well, that's the way it is always. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you know, that, of course, that's not true. Yeah, because in 86, it busts, right? Uh, big time, yes. Uh, it, it actually like? The downturn actually started in about 1982 and, oh, and then hit hard. Snap. And then I didn't know. Really, oh, it, it, that's, it started about oh. in 82. And, um, and then in 1985 was when it really, really, uh, wow. the end of 85 was when it crashed, when, when, when oil prices crashed. And, and, um, and it hit... Uh, the, the entire industry in Texas got hit really hard. West Whacked. Texas really Whacked. got, got yeah. Now, uh, let's rock it back just a little bit. Are you married at this time? Do you have kids at this time? Are you single at this time? Uh, I, I was single. Um, ended up, uh, I, I started uh, I started with uh, Lone Star Producing Company okay. in, in Dallas. And uh, I was there for six months and then they transferred me to houston oh wow and so uh, and i was still single at that time um and i ended up uh getting married then in houston okay and uh, my wife jane and i um, started a, a family right away at this wow. point we were um, uh, in our uh, mid to late 20s and it was um, anyway Started, time. started and uh, had two kids, both what? born in Houston. No kidding, yeah. Harris County. Well, Harris County, it's um, of all things, there was um, they were both born in um, Rosewood Hospital in Houston, uh, which was on Westheimer. The hospital's no longer there. It's wow. long gone. Wow. So, uh, what year was this when you started having kids and getting married? Was this early 80s already? I got married in 1979. Okay. And uh, okay. the, the kids were born in 80 and 82. So, and, man. I mean, Houston was just, you know, exploding at that time. But little did you know you were walking into one of the greatest busts of the oil industry. Well, no. That's exactly right. Yeah. Whoa. With brand new babies. Uh yeah, it's um, two new kids, uh, a new mortgage, uh, car payments, and bang. Jeez. Yeah, I know. Now, what killed the price? Because you got the embargo that's right, raising the price. OPEC's like, hey, we're going to cut production. That's kind of 
making the price go up. Uh, what made the price, in your opinion, or even reflecting back now, what kind of things were you seeing or were there, were there signs? What was the big red flag? What, what made the price crash in 82? The price... The price of crude oil was directly controlled at that time by OPEC. Okay. And OPEC decided, well, the rest of the world is producing, including the, the United States, the rest of the, you're producing too much cutting into our market share. And especially the Saudis were seeing their market share being cut into by other OPEC members mm. and so Saudi Arabia essentially said well we're going to control the oil prices and we're going to start off by opening up the taps whoa and so, so the, the, the market floodgates. the the world oil market then got flooded by production intentionally flooded by production and uh, it worked it, it knocked out um, a, a lot, lot of, of the competition industry right. it knocked the uh, you know the American oil market totally out of the picture wow. and the Canadians and you know and um, and then for my gosh the next uh, 20 years or so OPEC was arguing among themselves on you know how much to produce who gets what share and and, and America didn't and, have and a... so we went through the whole series of those cycles of up and down and not even with a seat at the table as far as America that's that's exactly right um, um, I don't think we've actually had a seat at the table until somewhat recently Wow. You know, maybe within the past 10 years perhaps wow. you know when, when oil we, the, uh, well, well I mean what made the what really made the difference in that was the advent of horizontal drilling and, right. and the primarily the hydraulic fracking. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the United States shifted from an importer to self-sufficient and then yeah. an exporter, all within wow. really just a few years. Wow. And it was all technology-driven. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I want to get into that in the drill-down mm -hmm. segment for sure with uh, your take on what was happening out here at the oil, you know, that boom in 2010 to 2014 or whatever it really was. Uh, it's only 10 years ago. It's crazy to think about. Yeah. Crazy to think about. 10 years ago, that was all going down, this massive shift in, in uh, American history and, and oil and gas history. Well, the... Um Let's see, from there, um, I had some, uh, a couple of really, really interesting experiences right at that, that time early uh, in um, 1986. Uh, this was right, right as things were, were crashing. I had the opportunity to do a, an offshore stint in offshore Suriname. Whoa! And this was a this was a project, um, really pretty much off the wall at that time. I mean, there was <laughs> at, in 1986 there was no production anywhere along the northeast coast of South America. 
I mean, none of the... Didn't you, exist. Not, you, you hear today about all of these huge discoveries yeah. that um, Exxon's making yeah. offshore uh, Guyana. Yeah. And, and Suriname has is a, is a, become a big producer. And, of course, all the huge uh, basins, uh, along offshore basins uh, along Brazil. Well, none of that was there in 1986. And... Um, there was a, this was done by uh, uh, a San Antonio company put, Is put that this deal right? to put this deal together what and it was um, it was based on some old 2d seismic lines that, that I think had originally had been shot by Gulf Oil Company wow. the Gulf Oil Company and this was uh, this was all shallow water, right, right up uh, near the coast. Yeah. Um, and they they got the rights to the data and got a concession from the government of Suriname, which at that time in 1986 was had just gone through a coup and an overthrow. Oh my and, gosh. And uh, so. Uh, we were walking right into the middle of that, oh where the government gosh. was uh, at the, was being run by a colonel in the army who was in charge of the country at Holy that time. Uh, but um, had this these old two D seismic lines, and uh, you could map in a, a series of four way closures, just real subtle yeah. uh, anaclinal closures. Mm -hmm. Uh, at, at a very at very shallow depths, uh, we're we're talking just um, three thousand to five thousand foot depths, and and on the uh, the, the very inner shelf of uh, offshore. So they they got a a barge, uh, well a, a submersible uh, rig uh, from from Morgan City, Louisiana. And towed that down, towed that down to Suriname. What the, the hell? Uh, the drilling crew was, uh, they were all from Morgan City. Um, half of them spoke French. I mean, Whoa. it was just, you know, what really, uh, they were, you know, it was the Cajun uh, yeah. country. And they yeah. were, so, and, now you, and now we you all went down there as, um, I was the ge geologist uh, <laughs> there, and, and I was going to be, uh, Oh, uh, running a chromatograph and and cool. doing uh, cuttings analysis. Yeah, cuttings and gases. And, and the the thing of it is, we had this seismic data. There was very little was known about the geology of offshore geology of, wow. of um, off the coast of yeah. uh, South America at that time. So we had these structures mapped. Didn't really know the age or the lithology of. You could see these reflectors on this, but okay, what is it? You know, what's the? Not really certain. You were the first one to see that. This was weird. This was really the beginning, beginning stuff. How exciting would that and, have been? And uh, so we ended up uh, ended up drilling, um, drilled four wells. How deep? Uh, the deepest was was five thousand feet. That's pretty and, and, deep. You know, three thousand to five thousand feet. And you and logged it, every cut, every rock that I got was out. Cut. I, I I was out there for ninety days straight. Ninety. And, it took ninety days to drill the four wells. Yes. 
that's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah uh, and I, I was there the entire entire flew in with the original crew and was one of the last ones to leave. Did you just live on this barge or whatever? We well, we lived in the uh, in between the drilling. We're, we're out on out on the drilling rig. It's yeah. it's a um, I, I called it a barge. It's it's a submersible drilling rig. You know, just where it, you, it submerges and sets on the sea bottom. You know, so it's only for shallow water. Yeah, it only works yeah. in real shallow water. Sure. And uh, and then uh, and then when you move it, then you pump the water out and it float comes up and floats <laughs> and you move over to the next place. And that, so it's one of one of paddles. it's one of those submersible things. But it's it's a big big rig. Yeah. You know, yeah. Full sub facility. Had to bring in everything. Had to come with us and be shipped in. There was no infrastructure at all. I mean, the closest oil field infrastructure was Trinidad, um, the, the country of the Trinidad. Where'd you get the energy from? How'd you how'd you bring in all the fuel to run the thing all day long? Well, the well fuel could be. Uh, brought out uh, by a, a service boat okay and uh and and we we were living in the capital city the capital city was paramaribo and uh then you which is inland about 30 miles oh wow and and on the paramaribo river which is a uh a, a river um pretty good sized river uh, coming out of the, the Rainforest jungle, which wow. is just a you know, little ways in. Yeah, uh, most of the country of Suriname is rainforest. It's part of, so they were like monkeys. It's, it's in the like street. it's like the Amazon, you know. Yeah, um, and what you're kind on of, the edge. What kind of wild creatures? Well, it's a rainforest. I mean, you—they're all there. Jaguars could, and monkeys. Yeah, and, you, and uh, well, you could you could hear uh, the. You know, <laughs> you're the, trying to sleep the, and you the, hear the in the city. Thing. I mean, Paramaribo was it was the capital city. It was about three hundred thousand people. Oh wow, there. that's big. I mean, it's pretty. Yeah. But that was that was the country. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's basically was one city. Yeah. And um and there was an there was an ongoing uh, rebel uh, army wow. on the outskirts of the city that was trying to still fighting wow. with the government over control of the country I that was what, going on wow so at night you'd hear gunfire oh uh, I gosh mean, uh, dang and, uh, it i mean small arms fire machine gun fire I mean, but we were at uh staying in a, at a motel and then uh, we'd go into town then for you know in between moves and whatnot and then yeah. you'd, you'd go back out right the, the paramaribo river interesting thing is it was such had such a strong current that um, flowing, of course, flowing towards the the ocean. Mm -hmm. Such a strong current that when uh, when the tide is going out, you could not go upriver. The, there's no way the the workboats could wow. could fight. So they had you had, they had to time it. And the only way you could get to town into Paramaribo from offshore was to go in with the tide. In with the tide. And so for half the time, you could not get in. Gee. I mean, it's, I mean, we're talking about a massive uh, distribution out, out, outflow. Yeah. So it's uh, whoa. Yeah. Right on. And uh, that is cool. So how do you even, as a geologist? 
you know, drilling, drilling wells, you always get offset logs. You get, uh, you go out to the log libraries and you find the old strip logs of all the wells in the area. I mean, to get an idea of what to expect, because that's... Well, there weren't any of those. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, well, uh, so, well, let me tell you then how, how it ended up. Uh, it turned out um, all the wells were, were dry holes. Oh, and oh. The, the problem was this, that the entire section, and I was, I was logging the cuttings, and, and but the entire section from essentially from the starting off drilling all the way down to 5,000 feet was composed of one lithology. It was uh, rounded, well-sorted, unconsolidated quartz grains. Thousands of feet upon thousands of feet of uh, oh, uh, ortho quartz, I you know, <laughs> just massive sense. Yeah. And it, what it was was this was, and it was all this was all then determined to be uh, Paleocene in the age, and it was uh, the the shield, the the, the Guyana shield, which is in northern uh, South America, mm-hmm. just a right there uh, north of the Amazon, had been exposed at that, uh, just prior to that time, and all of the granitic rocks had been eroded, and you had this massive amount of quartz grains. The, the, uh, all of the associated feldspars would have been, you know, they, they were- Dropped uh, out. Right, uh, well, they would have been, um, you know, uh, they, they were no longer carried through. Uh, they would have been uh, eroded off. Yeah. But the, so you, this, hmm. and if you have 5,000 feet of unconsolidated sandstone, I don't care how you fold it and, <laughs> and what you make out of a four-way closure, there's no way to trap it. Yeah, there's no so you <laughs> had all these reflectors showing these nice, gorgeous anaclines, but there was no trap. Because you got to have wow. some, you have to have some shale layers in there That's in order right. to provide a trap. Yeah, and so there were there were small shows of oil. But, oh, interesting. Um, I mean, it just it was unbelievable how fast the 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 bit was going through this stuff. Oh, I bet. And you'd stand at the shaker, and there was <laughs> there was a wall of sand. It's it's like frac sand, you know, or oh, beach wow, sand. Yeah. A wall of this is pouring <laughs> over the shaker. All day, (laughs) and and then you know after four wells it was okay. Well, we've met our obligation, and everything's the same. There ain't no no point continuing here. Yeah, yeah. And then um, and of course all the the, this was really early on, and and uh, you know in later years then they went further offshore and deeper, and they found the other. Yeah, other things. Yeah, but um, wow, what a story! Yeah, it was. Um, it's really wild things. Um, um, an, a, another an aside on on that uh, communication, uh, of course, yeah. with the outside world was almost non-existent. Uh, we're offshore Suriname, out on this drilling rig, and you. You had radio. The only communication with the outside world was uh, 
by radio, if, uh, and and that was only in an emergency if you you know somebody was severely injured or hurt yeah. or something. And the, uh, the at uh, and we would our only communication with as far as finding out what was going on in the world was uh, late at night a uh, satellite would come over wow. and we could get the BBC. Wow! And so we would get the news for about a 30-minute period, you know, each night as this particular satellite was in the right place yeah. and we could pick it up on a, on a, a radio, like a shortwave or yeah. a radio. And so we, this is 1986, and we pick up, this is late at night, and we pick up on the, the news broadcast that there has been a huge nuclear explosion what? in the soviet in the soviet union what and uh we're not really quite certain what this is or if uh if, you know if somebody has made an attack or what? what's going on and then that was the end of the broadcast oh my god because you only we only caught a brief window and of course of course what that was when we had no idea what was going on there what that was was the first announcement of chernobyl Oh, but all we got wow. was that there was a massive nuclear explosion in the Soviet Union. Oh my god. And we're we're wondering has has World War Three just yeah. started and we're yeah. out here and we don't know it. Holy and, uh, cow. And, uh, and it took a couple of days before we understood what was happening. Oh man, it so, must have been going. Oh it was. Head. It was really crazy. Because your family's back home. Oh, Can't talk and, to them. No, you're right. There's you're totally cut off from the rest of the world and uh but um, anyway. it's a traumatic experience, man. Well, it's just uh, it when you've when you've been through a situation like that, it, it really makes you appreciate the modern day uh, yeah. technology and the communication network that's the worldwide communication yeah. network that is in existence today. That yeah. you know that was just 1986, not that much long ago but there was yeah. sections of the world where you were totally cut off yeah i'm glad you put it that way because i was born in 86 for context so at least it's still not that long ago <laughs> it's approaching you know long ago and it's not that long ago wow what a story holy cow so you get back to the states working for the is this all under the same cover same company from from when you moved to houston no okay no 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 i i i actually had um um I started off with Lone Star Producing right. Company in Dallas, yep. and then I was transferred to Houston, yep. and I stayed uh, I stayed there for a, a few years. Okay, and um, then an, an opportunity came up to move to San Antonio, oh, and no. uh, I had I had uh, I actually in nineteen seventy nine. The uh, GCAGS convention, Gulf Coast Association of Geological Societies, the annual convention was in San Antonio, okay. and I had attended that when I was in okay. Houston at the yeah. time. And my wife and I came, and nice. I came over. Uh, we didn't have kids at that time. Oh we right, came, we right. Had just gotten, we had just been married, and we came over to San Antonio to go to this convention, and and we really loved the city. I mean, it was. It was a big city, but it was laid back, and yeah. uh, and 
I'm not uh, trying to suggest that um, Houston doesn't have its great qualities. It it does. You sure. know, it's a, it's a, also a, a lovely city. Lots to do. Lots going on. Yep. But just but, uh, at our at that moment in time, we were maybe looking for a little slower paced yeah. life than Houston, which which was pretty wild Long and hectic. Gone. You know, the spur of the Louisiana boot, they call it. Uh, it was um, that was you know the late seventies was I think there was a thousand people a day coming into Houston. <laughs> I mean it was it was some crazy number. Whoa! I mean it was and and um, yeah. you know the the entire uh, Rust Belt that whole thing was you know the economy had was collapsing in sections of sections of the midwest and it it made for a huge uh, move uh, yeah. transfer of uh, people to houston uh to wow. especially with the with the oil boom that, yeah. that, that was going on at that time at the time yeah anyway so but uh, so an opportunity came up uh, to uh move to san antonio and i did and i uh, i went to work for a um uh, petroleum engineer uh, called uh, H. V. Rizian, Harvey mm. Rizian, senior, and um, moved to San Antonio, and I was I worked for for him for a number of years, and and that uh, uh, really was the start of um, my career switching from looking for larger deposits and bigger fields yeah. to kind of downsizing my my uh, train of thought as to what we were going for yeah and now, uh, the, the engineer that ran that company is he the one that uh kind of funded that whole experience in south america is that his his son uh, harvey Rizian jr was the one who put that deal together Sheesh. and then and and he um uh, uh after that uh situation there we harvey was one of those um um explorationists who loved to hunt for elephants and uh and, or, which are, and they're fun elephant hunting can really be fun oh you know? yeah so we were often in Suriname looking for for <laughs> elephants uh the next elephant hunting was uh with with harvey was uh go out to Raton, New Mexico, and he, he managed to get a, um, a lease, a concession on the, the um, Vermejo Ranch, which is uh, huge, a huge ranch that was at that time owned by Pennzoil uh, within the middle of the Raton uh, Basin, which is all mountainous. <laughs> now the entire the Raton Basin structural basin is a surface is a uh, is a high is a mountain range. What the, uh, that north northeast New Mexico is uh, is all mountainous. Wow, and so, northeast and, New and, Mexico. I haven't and even so heard of you that. got well northern northern Mexico. Uh, there's two large basins. In the northwest corner San is the Juan. San Juan Basin. Yeah. And in the northeast corner is the Raton, Raton. Basin. Yep. They're both this, have the same age section. That are all you know, it's primarily a Mesozoic uh, section. There are all the, and um, the age of the basins are the same, and they're very similar. 
Well, the San Juan Basin, of course, has a huge basin-centered gas deposit right. in the in the Dakota sandstone. Yeah. In the, and the Dakota. Okay, yeah. so if the San Juan Basin has a huge basin-centered gas, what about the Raton Basin? Right. And that was. <laughs> that was an elephant that was worth going for. Let's go drill and, it. And Harvey put that deal together and got wow. a huge uh, concession on the Vermejo Ranch. And, and we, and I was a geologist that went out, was a well site geologist. Yep. Out, and so I was sent out uh, to Raton to do the well site job. I uh, was told that I'd be out there a week to 10 days. <laughs> Two months later, you know, <laughs> I got back to San Antonio. Seriously. Uh, it's just, you're out there way out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. No what was the KB up there? It was like 7,000 feet. Oh, it was. It absolutely was. I mean. Crazy. My gosh. The, um, I'm trying to think. You know how it was so remote. Uh. I remember the um, well, the drilling, the drilling rig was uh, was coming out of um, south uh, southeast New Mexico. Okay. You know, out of the Midland Basin. Yeah. I think uh, out of Hobbs. Out of the Permian. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. And and I remember uh, when it came time, uh, we had to run. Uh, we had to, part of the deal was we had to run logs, and the nearest logging truck was the truck, uh, it was a, um, it was Wellex, and, uh, you know, Halliburton. Oh, wow, was, cool. And, and they came out of Pampa, Pampa, Texas. That's the closest logging truck. So, uh, it obviously wasn't in the wintertime. It was not in the wintertime. It was, uh, <laughs> you, you wouldn't have been able to do it in no the winter. Way. And, um, anyway, and, and, but in order to evaluate the the well, looking for basin-centered gas, uh, we were and to get uh, we were drilling with air. It was oh cool. That's so that uh, at least the the idea being that um, uh, we drilled down, you'd see the Morrison, uh, and you'd know you were in the Morrison because of the the red cloud that the, oh, the yeah. air rig the would put cloud. out. Yeah. yeah, and that right underneath the Morrison would be the Dakota. Wow. And you know, if it's got gas in it, we're gonna we'll it's have good. a huge flame. Yeah. And, and if it doesn't, well, there won't be one. It turned TV. out. It turned out it was wet. It was. It had. Is water. that right? The Dakota was there, and it was wet. Wow. But uh, it was. It was a multi TCF prospect. Holy. You know, it was an ele- It was a true elephant. Wow. That's cool. You yeah. drilled the back of a big old elephant, gas mm-hmm. elephant. Now, how deep was the Dakota up there? Or how many feet you had to drill? I think it was um, 3,500 oh, or something wow. like that. Nice. 3,500 feet. Yeah. Maybe 4,000. Not, yeah. you know, not real deep. Yeah. Um, and, cool. uh, but we were just, it was from when you left the, the paved road uh, the paved highway coming out of um, Raton. You drive south of Raton about 10 miles. And then you'd, you'd turn up uh, to go up this old uh, coal mining road. There were some abandoned coal mines mm-hmm. that were in that area. But after you left the paved road, it it took way over an hour to get to the rig oh, side. My. 
because they were way back up in in the in the mountains. Wow. And that position was based on grab mag or seismic that was ran out there for some reason. No, it was it was we want to drill the center of the center of the basin. It's just geographically right, exactly. We're centered. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's right. What a cool, I mean, that's a, that's a cool story. It's yeah. definitely, a, it must've been kind of fun to be on the front lines. Oh, and, it was, uh, you know, this, again, this was uh, really cutting edge. Almost, yeah, you know, frontier. For, for that area. Right. A couple of years after we finished that well, the Vermejo Ranch was purchased by Ted Turner and, and his wife, uh, Jane Fonda. Ted Whoa. Turner and uh, and Jane uh, Turner, they bought that ranch for for their own, um, and then along came uh, coal bed methane. Oh man! And whoa, the and that entire Raton basin was filled with drilling rigs with uh, coal bed. Uh, um, Paleocene and Eocene uh, coal beds and big time That's gas they, deposits. Yeah, they drill these. Uh, what do they call them when they go? They they go one, from one surface and they spider out in a few different directions or maybe five. I think there's directions. I think there's a lot of different ways that that coal bed methane was was played, but that uh, Raton was one of the Raton Basin was one of the big deposits that was pursued wow. at that time, and and we would have had all that least that that you know. A few years prior to that, of course, I had no idea about coal bed methane, and we yeah. were chasing something totally different. But yeah, just, yeah. it's just—it was above what you were at. Oh yeah, right. But it was, was uh, but it's just one of those things. But so we would have drilled through that on the way down. Man, right on. Well, let's uh, let's get into the drill down segment. What do you think? Why not? Sure. <laughs> but for the drill down, please transition us from kind of Marky e. Thompson literally traveling the world, well site geology, exploration geology, hunting elephants, as you said, with Harvey, uh, I already forget his last Harvey Rizian. Rizian yeah. Jr. Um, and now, you know, you're, you've, uh, you've written a, a contribution to the South Texas Geological Society. I have pulled up here in one of the bulletins from 2019, a revised age range for the Texas Gulf Coast Serpentine Mounds. Uh, and one of the things that we're always talking about on the PB podcast is serpentines. You know, what is going on with serpentinization, this pro this geologic process that's starting to get more traction in the community and the technical side of things. And we, we're seeing it in the ocean basins now. It's, it's intimately tied to uh, building ocean crusts. Uh, it, it's a big process, and we're really, really interested in that. And how can we tie it to oil and gas generation? Because there's a small group of individuals out there saying, hey, this looks like it can generate liquid oil and, and meth, not just gas and, and that whole thing, but really, you know, it could be a source for some of the oil deposits out here. It could be a, a new source to better understand for oil and gas and petroleum geologists. Um, when I saw this paper, I go, oh, man, this is so cool. And they're everywhere. They're all over the place. With, you know, and you write about it, and it's a, a, a great article of just compiling a lot of information. You reference all of it very well. And it was, it was, a, it was a good read. It was very interesting to me, and, and thank you for contributing that. Uh, thank you for the kind words. 
So yeah, transition us into into what what happens next after hunting elephants and and then ultimately you know really understanding these serpentines. How did how did that whole story go? The serpentine. First of all, the the term serpentine, of course, is uh, uh, it's a it's a misnomer. It's uh, the, these are not actually serpentine deposits. Right. Uh, they're uh, igneous, uh, volcanic, and primarily volcanic clastic, uh, pyroclastic tuff mounds. Yeah. And they've been called serpentine because they have a green color. Right. The rock is green. But yeah. uh, I, I used the, the word serpentine in the title of, of that uh, article yeah. and in the and also in the text I explained that it's not actually certain but I use yeah. that because the the name is is ingrained within the literature and within the people's minds that yeah. if you say serpentine mounds or serpentine plugs they know what you're talking about if you say well, pyroclastic tough mounds, they're going to look at you a little differently and not have any. Anyway, so that being said, that, yeah. that as we, uh, from an academic standpoint, yes, I know they're not actually serpentine, but, and, and that's incorrect to call them so, but we're going to do so anyway, just because yeah. that's, that's within it. Yep. Um, I need to set this up just a little bit uh, so that um, it can be understood uh, how I got on, onto the serpentine. Is um, when after after the '85 situation, the, the downturn, the huge downturn then, and that was pretty much the end of my elephant hunting days. And with with Harvey and he. Uh, we both went in different directions at that time. Uh, he ended up making a, a, a really nice discovery in the Paradox Basin oh, cool. uh, on the uh, finding uh, uh, satellite algal mines, mounds to the greater Aneth Field in uh, Utah. But um, <laughs> and, and he did really, really well, and I was happy for Harvey. I ended up uh, going a, a different route, and... Um, I started off working Railroad Commission District 1 and generating prospects. Is for the and Railroad I have, Commission? And I have been, no, not for the Railroad Commission. Okay. Just a, geo, the geographical area was, I stayed in Railroad Commission oh, District, District one. Number I 1. I see. And I, see. I am still there, and I have, <laughs> I have, for the past 40 years, I have generated prospects, shallow oil prospects in Railroad Commission District 1. And when I say shallow, to me, a deep well is more than 3,500 feet. Yep. Uh, so, that's a, that, and most, that. of, most of what uh, I, I do is in the 2,500-foot range. And I have, I have generated drilling prospects. I, I, have, uh, I do um, uh, consulting work. For a few clients, that's a that's a small part of uh, of what I do of my income. 
Um, I operate wells uh, with the Railroad Commission, and the number of wells that I have operated has fluctuated through time, uh, <laughs> depending upon the um, situation and um, you know how the, the level of activity within the business. Of, um, sure. um, but I, I still work District One, um, and. Because of that, uh, I very early on uh, was involved in um, the discovery of a, a field in, in Bastrop County uh, called Bateman Field. And, uh, and, uh, Bateman Field. Bateman Field. I, I, wrote in, I wrote an article on it that was uh, published by the South Texas Geological Society. That was in 1985. Well, uh, and, okay, and, so and, right away you were. Right, yeah, right away that's, I started off on my own. I was forced to. There was in 1985, um, uh, at that time period, uh, in 85, 86, I mean, nobody was hiring. Uh, wow. you know, so I, when I came back from South America, that was the fir first thing I did. I said 85, I, it actually was 1986. But, uh, and that's, and I was introduced then to Serpentine in 1986 and uh, these volcanic mounds i was chasing the uh, the carbonates the uh, austin chalk dale limestone uh, along large uh, faults that were part of the luling fault system in, in that extended out of caldwell county into bastrop county yeah and uh, so i was um as part of uh, the drilling program, um, made a nice, uh, really nice discovery of what turned out to be um, a 39-well oil field in, in Bastrop County. The, That's in Bateman? In Bateman, the Bateman so field. Just outside of Austin? Uh, yes, uh, right uh, in what would be south southwestern Bastrop County. Okay. And this is all in at the 2,000 to 3,000 foot depth range. That is so cool. And uh, Did you while, I, while I was working in District 1, uh, and I've, I've, I've become very familiar with the geology of, uh, of the shallow geology of District 1, and I've, I've, in addition to uh, pursuing the uh, geology from uh, trying to generate prospects, I, I also have uh, become very familiar with the academic side of uh, the geology, the, the literature, mm -hmm. the, uh, the stratigraphy especially. The st stratigraphy is uh, my, um, the, really the part of geology that I love the most. Uh, yeah. and, um, Man, District 1 is big. And uh, there's a, a lot of opportunities for both the uh, geology side yeah district one is huge it's, <laughs> i mean it's it runs from milan milam county on the north uh, east side all the way to the rio grande uh, yeah. it's 400 miles long wow. district one and and essentially the the shallow drilling is is just um uh, southeast of Interstate 35, and then when you get to San Antonio, going westward, it's south of Highway 90. <laughs> and so, uh, isn't that funny? How the and, the roads right, kind of have been exactly, um, and just uh, immediately south of the in, entire Balcones fault zone. 
Man. Uh, is, where, now, is where the shallow is, production is. Is it the, uh, did you mention the Luling fault system? Luling? Yes. Luling? Is that also referred to as the Talc O fault system? It's uh, the name that's, that, that you're speaking of is the Mejia Talco fault system. And that's coming out of Northeast Texas. And oh. it's a series of, those are a series of antithetic faults. That, uh, in other words, they, uh, they dip to the northwest and uh, with the downthrown side being on the northwest side. Okay. Whereas the, so they're called antithetic because the, the Gulf of Mexico is dipping, the rocks the are dipping way. southeast, yeah. and here the faults are going the other direction. Yeah, yeah. And, now, but, it, but as you follow that Mejia Talco system down, yeah. it, when you get uh, down into um, the area immediately southeast of Austin, uh-huh. uh, there's a fault zone that's in the same position as the Mejia Talco, and that's the Luling Fault System. Okay. And that extends all the way from Bastrop County across Caldwell County, Guadalupe County, and into Bear County. Wow, nice. Now, does it get its name because there's talc associated with the fault somewhere? No, um, you know, I'm not certain. Of course, Mejia is the name of a town. Talco, you know, I don't know if there's a town in there. I, that's up in far northeast Texas, okay. and I just don't know the, the name to that. Uh, but Mejia, and of course, Luling is named after the city there of Luling okay. and, and the Luling oil field. Okay. But, but um, So uh, all of that being said about my exploration ec- efforts in, in District 1, um, yeah, I became absolutely fascinated with the serpentine, with these volcanic mounds yeah. that are oil productive. Yeah. You know, I, it's... You're not supposed to be producing oil out of volcanic <laughs> or igneous rocks. That's right. And yet these uh, these volcanic igneous deposits um, have some of the fields are quite lucrative. Yeah. Um, and most of them are are small and and modest, but there's some that are that are really good. And besides the economic standpoint, I just I find them absolutely intriguing um they what something about these deposits these rock deposits that i think very few people are aware of is uh, how unique they actually are and that's that's part to me that's part of the romance i mean what you have here are Rocks that are ultramafic yeah. in composition, and by ultramafic meaning they're uh, from a chemistry standpoint, they're they're really low on silica, okay, and high in uh, the alkalis. Right. Uh, Super so alkaline. if you if you plot um, igneous rocks, you can have lots of different classifications, but if you plot the classification of igneous rocks using silica along one axis and your alkali, which uh-huh. is potassium and sodium, uh-huh. on the other axis, the ultramafic rocks are all over to the left side. <laughs> uh, and these particular ones in, in Texas here, the the serpentines, yeah. uh, they all are with uh, 
silicate contents around 40% or wow. so, which is, which is really low. Yeah. And um, you have these, uh, these rocks are, they're, they're intrusive um, up uh, along the outcrop section. In other words, the exposures at the surface mm -hmm. are, these are intrusive rocks, but really fine-grained. They're still volcanic. They're right on the edge of, they're not plutonic by any means. They're still volcanic. Yeah. Interesting. And then uh, as you go uh, basinward, down dip into the subsurface, they, they change and they're, they're characterized by these volcanic tough mounds. Mm. Uh, altered, highly altered, mm -hmm. uh, diagenetically altered volcanic tough mounds. Mm -hmm. Well, collectively, the intrusive and the extrusive ones are, are called the Balcones Igneous Province, okay. or the BIP. And the BIP is absolutely unique from the standpoint of you've got ultramafic volcanics yep. that are relatively young. The vast bulk of ultramafic rocks are Archean or um, Mesoproterozoic, at the, the youngest. Um, these are Mesozoic, I mean, right. you know, uh, and extremely young. Extremely And young. they are deposited, these ultramafic volcanics are deposited on a continental passive margin. Yeah. There is, there's no other place on the planet, on Earth, that you can point to and say, here are ultramafic volcanics deposited on a shelf margin, continental <laughs> passive margin. No other place on Isn't earth. Isn't that amazing? Not only that, there's not a really good explanation as to how these are even emplaced. Right. Where the, because right. you you normally when you have ultramafic volcanics you there you have either a subduction zone right or a Rift, a, maybe? a a hot spot a, a mantle oh, plume a mantle plume and right. these there's no at the time of uh, deposit in the uh, upper cretaceous right there's no evidence for a subduction zone anywhere near the deposit. There's definitely no evidence for a mantle plume or anything. And not only that, not only that, but when you look at the actual composition of the rock, it's these rocks are the the they're uh, the intrusive ones. They're jet black in color with a fine grained ground mass that is composed of olivine and augite yeah, magnetite yep. jet black with phenocris um of uh olivine and and augite yep. that's pretty and, tight yep. and w when you look at the that chemical composition and you compare it with the primary magma of what's what 
certainly has been documented to be in the asthenosphere or perhaps even the upper mantle. Yep. This is it. And, and the chemical analysis of these uh, BIP rocks shows them to be the amount of mixing that would be involved as they're they're coming up from a very deep deep source. deep seated magma mm-hmm. is almost nil less than five percent has been the calculation of, of mixing to it and wow. so you have rock magma coming from really deep uh, the the asthenosphere is um 80 kilometers down. And this is coming from oh. at least that depth, maybe 80 to 100 kilometers. Yep. It's making it to the surface yep. with no mixing with any of the, wow. of the rock that it's traveling through. Whoa. And it has this composition of the, it's maintaining that. Yeah. And, uh, and then uh, also one of the really big things is it... It does, this magma, the, the rock has picked up some xenoliths nice. along the way. Mm-hmm. It's picked up some xenoliths, and those xenoliths contain zircons. That's right. And so that allows, that's a tool that allows uh, you to look at the age of the zircons within the xenoliths and get an idea of the composition and the age yep. of the crustal rocks that are sitting underneath the spot where the the uh, underneath the BIP, you know, okay. from from deep down. Right. And and so what what I did the 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 one of the primary reasons that that I I wrote and, and published the paper that in the uh, STGS bulletin mm-hmm. was there. I was I had been working the serpentine deposits for oil and you know look for exploring for oil and gas for uh, almost forty years, and I was very familiar with the uh, subsurface, the mounds, the the oil fields. Um, there had been uh, several uh, papers published uh, by academics uh, within, from the USGS and also from some of the Texas universities. Uh, there was a group uh, that was doing really great work out of uh, University of Texas at Dallas. Mm. And, uh, and they had, uh, had taken these... Uh, rocks from the at the surface exposures and had done um, uh, isotopic uh, geo uh, chronology dating mm-hmm. on them mm-hmm. and and they were using the the most recent highest technology you know techniques that they could they were uh, getting these samples and taking them to a facility at Ohio State University oh, and wow. doing this was Absolutely cutting cutting edge, edge, top of the top of the line work. I commend them. The the work they did was was absolutely fabulous. Mostly on the zircons. Uh, No, this this was actually dating using uh, 
uh, argon uh, isotope of argon 40 over argon 39, 39 mm -hmm. and and dating the um, uh, the the actual. Um, uh, Rock that's uh, you know the volcanic rock okay. rock itself. Okay. Uh, that, not not uh, not so much uh, the zircons. And they were also, but they also, in addition to the argon uh, isotopic dating, they were doing um, the uh, uh, uranium uh, lead uh, dating. In other words, they they were using all the various uh, known and accepted isotopic dating yeah. methods. Yeah. And they came up. Uh, with um, a an age range uh, that uh, ran from um, uh, 76 million years ago uh -huh. to about 84 million years ago, and so that's that's a roughly they were able to put all of these samples that they dated into within an eight million year window, yeah. and that. Uh, this was uh, that age range, uh, you know, is all Upper Cretaceous. It fits um, for from a stratigraphic standpoint. Uh, besides, just I hate to throw just the number of million of years, but it's uh, it's right at the Upper Austin Chalk uh, and the top of the Austin Chalk and the base of the overlying Taylor. It's right at that boundary, about an 18 million year window, which would be, um, that'd be Upper Santonian and uh, Lower Campanian. Yeah. Um, and, hmm. but, so, and they published uh, this information in, in a couple of um, journals of some, uh, you know, reputable work and, 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 you need to be, uh, I want to be very clear on this, uh, that uh, in no way have I ever attempted to um, detract from their work. They, the work they did was great. I've never disagreed with their results or uh, the work they did. Mm -hmm. But what uh, the point that, that got to me was that in, in the article, the authors uh, stated that the age range, this 8 million year age range that they obtained from about two dozen to three dozen samples, all taken from the outcrop, the intrusive outcrop section uh, in Uvalde County, okay. going all the way up to Pilot Knob in Travis County. Mm -hmm. They said that's the age of the BIP. Ooh. And and they 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 not only implied they said that the entire Balcones igneous province is this age. Oh wow. Well, I have been working the sur these same deposits yep. in the subsurface right. for decades and I don't have any isotopic dates or anything but what I do have is I can put together stratigraphic cross sections yep. across these subsurface mounds uh, where I've got good well control and I can clearly 
document that some of these mounds are much older than the age, than this eight million year mm -hmm. age range that they came up with using their radio, uh, isotopic dating. And uh, others are substantially younger than that. And in fact, I was able to, I, I can clearly, I can document uh, that the Balcones Igneous Province, the age range stretches across about a 30, 30 million year range rather than just this 8 million years. And it extends all the way from uh, the Turonian all the way up to the Maastrichtian. And wow. So 60 so, to 90. So I, that is why I, I, the title of the article is revision of age range yeah and and again i'm I, i'm not attacking the work of the the previous people who dated sure. the only complaint i had was that they put that age range across the whole bip yep. and and where that and why that matters you know you might say well Big deal, Mark. What difference does it make whether you're off a few million years here uh -huh. or there? Or something? Is the, the reason that that matters is that because the, the, BIP, the rocks of the BIP have these xenoliths and these zircons, and you can there then date the age of the, the crustal rocks underneath the Gulf Coast coastal plain, mm -hmm. uh, it has serious uh, implications about putting to, uh, piecing together the, the breakup of Pangaea mm -hmm. and the opening of the Gulf of Mexico. Okay. And the, the entire plate tectonic model of the opening of the Gulf of Mexico, which is extremely complex, especially on the the western side when you when you wow. when you're talking about uh, the breaking uh, the pull apart of uh, Gondwana moving uh, to you know southward South yeah. uh, and leaving uh, um, breaking apart from North America from right? from North America yeah. right uh, that's be, is really uh, complex and and therefore. A number of the the very recent articles that are being published within, say, the past five years, uh, that are dealing with the plate tectonic models of that, they reference the BIP ah. and they they use the eight million year uh -oh. range of that's the age of the volcano of the igneous deposits oh, in South Central, and see that's wrong. Yeah. And, and I saw that, and, and that was the impetus for me to write, write that article. Right on. And to document the age range. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the comments we got back, I posted that I was getting to sit down with you as the author of this paper, and we got a comment about how uh, his comment was, what removed the Eagleford to Edwards Interval? What removed the Eagleford to Edwards Interval? All right. The, the subsurface mounds... Uh, they were erupted onto the sea floor. These were submarine eruptions. Okay. 
And so here you have a, uh, a magma, a molten rock magma rising to the surface. And as it gets to the surface, it comes in contact with the sea bottom. So you've got super hot molten rock mm -hmm. meeting water mm -hmm. and you get an extremely explosive eruption uh, to the point where a giant crater gets excavated in the sea bottom. Okay. So now you're dealing with uh, relatively recent deposits, relatively. So, I mean, the degree of consolidation on some of the, the, these rocks was, um, you know, less than what, what you see today. And so you, you get a, a giant crater that removes... All the rock that would normally yes. have been there. Okay. It removes the Austin Chalk. It yeah. removes the Eagleford, the Buddha, okay. the Del Rio, the George. All of those can get removed, and then that 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 crater that was excavated gets filled up with the volcanic material. Right, and it it then fills up to sea level, and then I mean uh, to the level of the sea bottom. Yeah, and then builds a cone above that so you get uh, you can have a double thickness if you will the the height of the mound above the uh, sea bottom as well as the depth of the crater that was yeah. excavated and nice. when you when you put it when you lay out a cross section you have this large uh, deposit of volcanic rocks and all of the uh, the horizontal relatively horizontal um, Sedimentary rocks, they're all gone. Yeah. Because <laughs> they've, been, they've been blown out, you yeah. know, forming yeah. the crater. But so, so that's the answer to the question. Okay. To right question. on. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was a good explanation of, of kind of the, how the, the geomorphology of these serpentine tops that you're picking uh, maybe has that kind of crater look to it, even and a cone look to it. They kind of wedge their mm -hmm. way and, and, and look like that in cross section. So that's pretty cool. And I appreciate the comment from, uh, from Wayne camp as always. He's, he's always, uh, got good questions. Um, the, the, uh, peridotites, when we looked into the chemistry of it, like you said, it's super alkaline rich peridotites. These are really, really enriched peridotites, which, it, which represent a very deep layer based on right. Hatherton and Dickinson's study of the K57.5 index, where they took volcanic, uh, or they took subducting slabs around the, uh, the, uh, Circa Pacific and they did the chemistry on how these slabs were melting and making rocks at the surface. So they had chemistry tied to an actual subducting angle. And they did that all over the place. And a bunch, a bunch of data went into building this, what's called the K57.5 index. And based on that data and, and further studies, these peridotites are coming from very deep, you know, potentially a thousand kilometers type numbers. I mean, very deep based on the K57.5s. And your, your, your idea of, you know, is it a hot spot or some major rifting, you know, what, what the heck made that those things pop through the ocean floor? That is, I think a very unknown and probably a, a pretty interesting place to dive into uh, maybe over the next several years with, with universities well, around here. And well, you have, to, you have to have some form of uh, tensional um, spreading or uh, fracturing mm -hmm. with, of the, of, 
in order to uh, allow um, the upward movement to even get started. Yeah. And so uh, it's interesting that the uh, the BIP you can you can make a case for that because um, it's a the position of the Mesozoic volcanics is superimposed upon um, what would have been a suture point in the Precambrian, uh, in the, um, mm. the Mesozoic uh, or uh, Mesoproterozoic, uh, at the Lano uplift. Uh-huh. Recent, recent work uh, coming out of um, UT, uh-huh. uh, Austin, uh, on the... Uh, um, Metamorphic rocks in the um, southern part of the Llano Uplift have determined that, in fact, they represent uh, an island arc and other wow. arc deposits, wow. and that uh, and that have been accreted onto a um, uh, a, a, a cratonic terrain, and wow. the and they've been able to date that as being. Um, uh, right around uh, 1.1. Oh, wow, and the Grenville. Exactly. It exactly matches the Grenville. Wow. And so you now got, you now can bring in a, uh, a um, proterozoic um, um, zone of weakness, the mm-hmm. crustal zone of weakness. Mm-hmm. Then you at that same and, and and that's down deeper then sure and then at that same point roughly approximately that same point you have the uh wachita orogenic belt yep. that yep. gets piled up right at the exact same spot pennsylvania uh, in, uh, in in the pennsylvanian that's right and which with uh, Gondwana coming up from <laughs> yep. the south and plowing into yep. uh, Laurasia. Yep. And uh, Pangea is forming. And Pangea gets formed, right. And then all and, in that same suture. And, and, and which is, you know, right over the topper of that Grenville front, <laughs> yeah. that old yeah. Grenville front, and that same suture. So then, uh, at, the, um, in the, at the very end of the, Permian, the start of the Triassic, you know, the, you start to get the, the pull apart yep. then. Yep. And uh, for the longest time, um, I don't know, going back, my gosh, back into the 1960s anyway, this is, you know, even predating uh, uh, plate, plate, plate tectonics, tectonics and whatnot. Yeah. It had always been assumed that the, um, the metamorphic rocks, the, the schistose type metamorphic rocks mm-hmm. that are underneath the um, Gulf Coastal Plain. Okay. When you drill through the Mesozoic section here at uh, at San Antonio, you'll you'll drill through the Edwards and the Glen Rose and uh, the Sligo and whatnot. You get down there and then you come out into some schistose rocks, and it's that way all wow. along the entire coastal plain of wow. the Gulf Coast of Texas. Okay. And that had always always been assumed that that was uh, um, from the overthrust belt and okay. that these were, of, of course, uh, you know, part of Laurasia that um, was there. Well, recent dating of mm-hmm. things like the zircons mm-hmm. within the BIP xenoliths and whatnot 
show that the crustal rocks underneath the coastal plain of Texas don't match time-wise wow. Laurasia. Wow. What they match is Gondwana. Oh, wow. And so the rocks underneath San Antonio are actually a piece of South America that broke off and got left behind. Left behind. And it was accreted on. It was accreted onto the North American Craton. And then when Pangea broke up and, and Gondwana pulled back, it left that section wow. and that's what is underneath the coastal plain and the BIP is one of the flags that comes up to document that also tracing the old Grinville and and tracing the, and this this is all research within you know the past 10 years right and it's and it's ongoing right now and and that's and that awesome. was why I really felt it was necessary to get the the age range for the BIP no down question. correctly. No question about it. No question about it. We got to jump into that. That is fascinating to me. It, it really is. The outcrop, large sections of uh, outcrop in Mexico now of um, rocks that had been known for a long time to be um, uh, Proterozoic and Jurassic and whatnot, like uh, the old uh, Coahuila Peninsula and whatnot. Now the thinking is that all of that stuff is all used to be Columbia, wow. used to be part of Gondwana, and you know, it was, and this is really different. And it's all coming out because they're able to date them, right. and it does the dates. Uh, you know, significant age differences between yeah. Laurasia, the South part of Laurasia and the north part of Gondwana Gondwana, when they collided that's huge no it's it I just I love reading about that stuff (laughs) I I get lost really easy (laughs) (laughs) wow right on okay so what's interesting is uh tell me tell us about the history of shallow oil in San Antonio the history of shallow oil in San Antonio what's the oldest shallow oil well around this area, South Texas, and then kind of walk us in from there to the boom of the Eagleford horizontal, Austin Chalk, Eagleford, and all that. Can we span, you know, that 100 years, I guess it would be? Well, I can, I, I can tell you this, that um, commercial oil production began in in Bear County, in, in southern Bear County, south of San Antonio, uh, around 1890. Wow. And it's, it's documented, very well documented, that in the time period from 1890 to 1895, that all, 100% of the oil that was sold in the state of Texas came from Bear County wow. in that t- in that five year time period, and and that's you can find that in um, uh, a 1914 publication uh, published by the UT by the University of yeah. Texas. Uh, it was the author of that was Phillips, 1914, and um, 
there's some, it's fascinating to look at uh, some of the really old uh, publications of the USGS in, in their early days. And when I say old, I'm talking 1899, 1900 publications. Wow. And they're talking, some of those early ones, um, these are reports, you know, from the USGS to Congress, essentially, uh, wow. justifying their existence. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh some of those really old ones they talk about, uh, like there's one that uh, refers, I think it's from 1899, that refers to oil production um, in the western half of the country. Um, and one of the uh, uh, dominant areas mentioned is Bear County. Wow. Because it was that, and so the, it really was the uh, the start of the Texas oil business, and and until um, around what was it, 1898, when it was supplanted then by the discovery of the Corsicana mm. oil field, and then that large discovery uh, was the dominant one until Spindletop in in 1901, 1902. Okay, that's the and Santa then, Rita. And then Bear County was you know had was relegated to the backwaters. Yeah, at that, <laughs> at that time. But it really truly is the 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 earliest commercial. Wow production was in Bear County. Now, there may have been some instances that are documented of oil wells in yeah. other parts of the state, yeah. uh, far uh, northeast, uh, Nacogdoches area and whatnot, but not commercial yeah. deposits where oil was actually being sold. That was, the, the home to that is Bear County. Wow. Really What's the, when, when was the last kind of... Uh, real effort into drilling a lot of the shallow wells like there's a lot of wells out here there's thousands of shallow wells out here but it's it's obviously not really on the radar of anybody anymore there's not a bunch of shallow well drilling still no, is there no yeah. no the well the 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 number one thing as far as, as south texas um was the discovery in 1922 of the Luling oil field. Okay. I mean, that's, this was a, uh, a world-class oil field. It's a, it's a 150 million barrel oil field. 150 million. And uh, at a depth of 2,000 feet. Oh, you know? my gosh. That's and a gold mine. That really set off the, the drilling, okay. um, the search for additional yeah. drilling oil fields. Yeah. And a few of them were found, but a lot of wells were drilled all along the, uh, the Balcones fault zone and just down in uh, to the south of there looking for an, another drilling field. Wow. Um, and that, that really continued up until, I'd say, the 1950s. Okay. And... Then um, there were additional ones, but, uh, and of course, the, my gosh, the time period right after the Second World War um, was the rise of the Permian Basin, uh, where wow. um, so much of the money and activity moved west from the Gulf Coast uh, wow. to um, the Permian. Yeah. But... Um, there's still a there still is shallow well drilling nothing near the amount that there used to be yeah um, but uh, and there's there's less and less of us doing 
that yeah. that type of thing. Yeah. So you get all the way into the 80s, the 90s, and it's all vertical production. There's not right. not much horizontals anywhere in the country. You know, there, there is, but it's just nothing like we have today where we, there's tens of thousands of these horizontal wells now. Um, what was it like when when the horizontal you know revolution if you if you want to call it that when it when it hit in 2010 to 2012 and i mean eagleford was must have been just incredible well i i i really can't speak too much about the the eagleford play uh the eagleford is it's a big boys game the wells are very expensive um you the least costs are out of sight, you know, and just uh, uh, small independents like myself, um, you know, there's yeah. no way that yeah. I was able to participate in that. Uh, but I did see the, and was involved quite heavily in the original horizontal drilling boom in Texas, which was at Pearsall. Pearsall. Pearsall was, that's where horizontal drilling in Texas began. Really? And that would have been the time frame 1987 to 1991, wow. 1992. Wow. That, that's where that's where it began. That's where nobody prior to 1987 or a sidetrack well or something like that. But the actually horizontal drilling. What were they going for in the Pearsall horizontal? Uh, it was the Austin Chalk, and the, the, the leader of that was Oryx Energy. They, they were the pioneer in the whole thing. Holy cow. And what, what had happened is they, they had tried, horizontal drilling was, was new, and, but, and they tried it, in quietly tried it in, in on some of their leaseholding. They had a an extensive lease uh, hold uh, position right there in the Four Corners area to the uh, west of Dilly in Frio, where Frio County comes together with Frio, LaSalle, oh, yeah. Dimmit, and La Zavala, that four county. Okay. And Oryx had a, a, a a large acreage position uh, from the Big Whales field, which was a San Miguel field at about 5,000 feet, and that, which was, they were the big acreage holder there. Okay. And they also had some additional acres. Well, they tried this horizontal drilling, would have been in the, maybe around 1987 or so. Whoa. And they saw, hey, this works and it's just simply you've got fractures within the austin chalk that all run parallel to one another northeast to southwest and so why not drill (laughs) 90 degrees to them horizontally and and they tried they tried it and it worked big time wow so they immediately and quietly went out and increased their acreage position to a, a giant you know position wow now they weren't and then what and then what happened was when it came time for them to actually produce the wells there was a problem because there were no rules with the texas railroad commission on how to do this wow you know it was statewide rule spacing 40 acre spacing well 
there just were no rules. And so Oryx Energy had to have, they called for a hearing at the, at the Texas oh, Railroad Commission smokes. in Austin. Yeah. And it became quite clear to the industry, you know, word had started to leak out because yeah. the, people were hearing things about, Hey, Oryx has got a well over there that's making over a thousand barrels a day. Well, there were no thousand barrel no. a day oil wells in Texas for a long time prior to that. You know, and so and and they're they're having a hearing and they're gonna um wow. they're kind of uh, gonna have to, you know, lift up their skirt and show what's yeah, what's going right. on here. Yeah. And so the the hearing was Standing room only. They had oh, they moved man. it to a, 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 the largest facility they had in Austin for the Railroad Commission. That's legendary. And it was an Oryx showed what they were doing and and how they and that immediately touched off a boom. Wow. And every rig for five hundred miles <laughs> moved to Pearsall. <laughs> I, I'm I'm serious. What did that, that look every like? Every rig in oh, West Texas, in God. Oklahoma, everywhere. The man camps, the everything. You would be, there were I don't know. I mean, it was way over a hundred. Over a hundred rigs were running at the same time. You would drive down to Pearsall or drive yeah. to Dilly at nighttime. And there were rigs everywhere, and they all had these big flares. Wow, looked like I mean, Manhattan. It on fire. <laughs> and, and I'm not exaggerating. I mean, that's the way it was, and that was the first horizontal drilling boom, and and, and that was right here at San Antonio, you know, just south of here. Wow. And and so San Antonio was the was the hub of that. It wow. really was. Gosh, how and cool. And there were a, there were a number of people, oil people in San Antonio, that had. Gotten acres that uh, had gotten acres positions and were involved wow. in it, and 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 everybody was learning at the same time how yeah. to do it because nobody knew how to do these. Yeah. Nobody knew how to drill. So there, as you can imagine, there were lots of mistakes made in the early days, and um, there were blowouts, and there were people lose control of their wells, and just uh, but uh, it was a trial and error thing, and yeah. and it was. It was wild times. Wow, it really it was. It's a human flourishing project. And, and then, then that, once that uh, got, uh, people understood how to do that, then that moved up to Giddings, and that the same thing occurred there all wow. through the Giddings field, you know, the horizontal, uh, the, um, all across that area. And then, then it spread out uh, yeah. across the country. Wow. And... Um, uh, the 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 thing about the Eagleford, of course, it wasn't so much the horizontal drilling; it was the fracking. Right. That's because right. all those Austin truck wells at, at Pearsall, uh, they were open hole completely. Wow. There were the, nobody do, was doing yeah. any fracking Didn't at, have at to, all. Yeah. Yeah. You found Mother Nature's fractured reservoir. Really cool. Wow, that's fascinating. Now. Uh, let's move into the completion part of the PB podcast. Mm -hmm. Marky Thompson, you have taught me all kinds of things. You've taken me back in time. Uh, you've uh, taught me about this oil boom. You I mean, all, all kinds of in interesting information and, and experience that you have uh, of being in the oily business and, and, and reading and being a part of the history uh, up to this point. 
the completion part of this show is all about, you know, where, where do you think it's really going from here? How does, how does San Antonio and this incredible history of, of, of building the oil and gas business of Texas or maybe even North America, uh, what, what's next for San Antonio? What's next for South Texas oil and gas? I have a hard time uh, answering that question specifically. Um, I certainly am, am not on the, um, in the lead of, of any of the uh, uh, new technologies that are, are coming out. I've, I've played uh, shallow um, District 1 oil field uh, generating prospects there uh, for pretty much my entire career. Uh, and it was all, I did all of that using the old school methods. Um, but uh, I, I think maybe the, the, the way to perhaps answer your question is what I see taking place right now is a, a significant change in the, in the industry, in our oil and gas industry. Um, it's really changing from the standpoint of, I don't believe the small companies, the indie, the one man, two man independent mm -hmm. people are gonna be players in this business down wow. the road. It's, it's changing rapidly to um, high technology um, the the money that's available for um, drilling mm -hmm. and exploration wants to get involved with the newest technology, the, right. the, the newest invention that's come along, understandably. Um, I, I also see from uh, my personal standpoint that... Um, trying to put together prospects in the state of Texas, in South Texas right now, is really being hampered by the land prices, the price of land. Trying to get oil and gas leases, um, especially if you're playing anything shallow or, shall we say, modest. Uh, it's if you're drilling $10 million wells and horizontal yeah. wells and putting big frac, you can afford to pay an exorbitant right. acreage fee because in a, on a percentage basis, it's immaterial to the cost of the well. But that oil and gas lease prices are being ingrained uh, into landowners. Wow. And, and what I am running into absolutely because of the area that I work, District 1 shallow means uh, where I used to be able to get leases and do drilling the area south and southeast of Austin. Mm -hmm. Can't do it anymore. Is that no, nobody wants to lease. Because the right? land value, as Austin has expanded out to the south and the east and yeah. the southeast, yeah. it's moved down several counties what? wide <laughs> and from the people in who work in Austin uh -huh. or, or have you know or lived in Austin and they want to get out in the country yeah 
and they want their 20 acres or 50 acres or whatever. And the last thing they want is, I don't want five or six oil wells on my place. I I just don't want anything to do with that. And I run into that all the time. Wow. And it's changing the industry. It really is from the standpoint that you have to have substantially bigger projects to justify, uh, you know, paying leases. Right. And so I think uh, I really see the day of of the being able to make a go by producing stripper wells is um, it's an endangered species right now, in my opinion. And and I know that you and I both are involved in That's this, right. but I, I I don't think that uh, looking forward that wow. um, I think that's yeah that's a it's going to be a thing of the past. I, I and I also because of negative um, portrayals right. of our industry, both by uh, government and uh, celebrity type people, mm-hmm. um, younger people they don't want anything to do with yeah. oil and gas yeah. and you can even look at the geology departments of the oh, universities man. today there's a strong emphasis on on water or engineering or environmental geology yep. and that's fine that's i mean yep. that's but the oil and gas is being left behind yeah. as far as what's being taught. Yeah. And and just, I, I just see a, a huge sea change coming in the ability to make a living by the production of modest amounts of oil and gas where we used to be able to do, to, you could make a living. And I'm not talking about getting wealthy, but just making a living. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, provide you for your family and yeah. whatnot. I just think that's going to become more and more difficult as wow. the years go go on. And wow. it it, I I don't have a rosy picture to paint for sure. uh, for the uh, the future of stripper wells. Yeah, which which is a large percentage of the production of the state of Texas right. production. Yeah, I think it's thirty percent, isn't it? It's Something just like becoming that. more and more difficult. Uh, also with the, um, the regulations, uh, yeah. that, that are increasing. Um, yeah. I know there are, there are certain people in Austin that are, are resisting, trying to resist yeah. that. But if you, if you operate wells, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. The regulations keep multiplying yeah. every year and there's always one more hoop you have to jump right. through and it costs three hundred dollars and, and, and <laughs> it's just every little thing and uh, yeah. now i mean you now there's discussion about having to monitor emissions and right. just all of these things and it, it all adds up and yeah. it doesn't necessarily affect you when you've got big wells making huge amounts sure. but for the the more modest pr- production it's it's going to affect that Wow. Yeah. No, it's very, very interesting. And I think that's, yeah, a lot of logic in there. I don't know. I don't know. I just, uh, I feel like oil farming, uh, is what I like to call it. The oil farmers or the, the oil farming business. Yeah. Uh, it's a very, very important one, you know, for the people that are willing to yeah, go out yeah. there and, and keep the production going. 
I, I, I also, let me say this, that I, I receive calls from people that I've never heard from, I don't know at all, uh, they got my name, a, a referral from somebody else, and they're looking for a consulting geologist to, that they can hire to help them with a, a well that uh, they're either going to drill or to help evaluate them. Or and, and I get told all the time, there's no one left to call. Wow. What I, what I do is a, an independent consulting geologist that is familiar with the operations and drilling of real shallow wells, where there used to be a lot of us around, there aren't any more. And, and I, I hear that all the time wow. that, um, that just ev they're, everyone's retired or, yeah. or deceased. Wow. And uh, it's, there's, a, there's still a niche here for people like me, but you know, um, we're getting older too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't see any, any young people are coming along to replace us. No, I know. Things, things that I know how to do yeah. are, are going to be lost. Yep. And, and I'm talking about, I, I do a lot of work with things like driller's logs, and I, I do a lot of my prospect generation uh, using uh, information from wells that were drilled prior to the advent of uh, open hole electric logging. Wow. And, and I know how to, to work those yeah. and, and do that data and how to access that. And, but no. none of that's being taught anymore. No, heck no. It's not being taught in the schools. It's not being taught uh, in the training courses by the oil companies. Yeah. And, and uh, I think there's these little things like that are, are going to become a lost art that wow. nobody knows how to do What a anymore. waste. And it's not just the oil and gas industry that's experiencing that. A lot of other industries as well. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of waste. A lot of waste. You know, a lot of waste. Because if it, it's not about if. It's it's when it comes back. And when it when we, I think we realize that you can't have a thriving city like Austin or a thriving city that's expanding from San Antonio or, you know, thriving humans without abundant and efficient energy and so if you're if you're growing over the top of these reservoirs and you're saying i don't want to drill into those anymore for that energy we're going to use solar panels or we're going to use wind or some other thing that you think is going to generate the power that you need to sustain the demand uh there's a massive imbalance there there's just there's major logic that's flawed in that we're not we're, we're nowhere clear no, uh, close the, to getting there. It's to to make a changeover that would be that significant requires a huge amount of time, and right. the ones that want the change to be made are wanting it now. That's right. And there's no way that that can happen. That's right. They just, just don't get it. They don't get it that nope. it just can happen now. So you're absolutely right. You're you're in a generation, and that's one of the reasons we do this podcast too, is just to to get. Uh, more information about that. What do you do with those drilling logs or how do you capture that? You know, I got my master's degree at UTPB, the Permian Basin UT mm -hmm. school and the professor there is Dr. Bob. And he's got a great class about logs, about reading wireline logs, reading old strip logs. You know, he's, he's got a great class that goes into that. But my undergrad, my geology undergrad class in California has completely dissolved. And now you can get a bachelor's degree in environmental with a minor in geology. 
how the hell does that make any sense? How can you get no. a bachelor's degree in understanding the environment when you have a minor in understanding how the earth works? Yeah. Uh, I, I can't answer that. Um, <laughs> I, I, what is the, going on? I, I, I think that um, there's probably very few s schools that even where you can get a, a degree in geology and never even see a, law, a, a well law. Yeah. Because yep. it's, all, it's, it's all about what's on the surface, not subsurface. Yeah. And yet the reality is that the most important thing that a student could actually learn is how to read well logs because it doesn't matter if you're in oil and gas or mining or engineering or hydro hydrogeology, mm -hmm. you're dealing with the subsurface and you're dealing with well logs. Yeah. And yet it's, that's, yeah. um, that is getting left behind. Yeah, it is. It is. The future is very, very interesting. And I think it's very volatile, uh, for, for energy. We, we don't, we don't have a realistic coming together of, you know, okay, I get it, solar and wind and all these alternatives to make the, uh, the, 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 the real workings of, of a civilian or like a civilization work, you know, in modern time, I get it, but to, to completely get rid of and lose track of the most stable and abundant and efficient way to generate energy at the same time, you're trying to make this transition is, it's very, uh, concerning. It's concerning, I think is the word. It's concerning. Uh, it's hard to make sense of that, of yeah. what's, what's happening. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to keep pursuing the, uh, the shallow oils. I'm going to definitely pursue that. I'm excited about technologies that could help with uh, stretching out the decline curves and, and becoming a lot more efficient because shallow oils are so cheap to operate once you optimize. Uh, and you really get your hands around that. I think if you can flatten out the curve at the same time, you get, uh, you know, some of that stuff worked out. I, I think there's certainly some, some, uh, a way to make a living. I'm, I'm still believing in that, but I'm, I'm certainly listening to you at the same time. Well, <laughs> I, I, I am pulling for you. I, I actually hope that it continues. I, I was yeah. simply making the statement that realistically i i see it becoming more and more difficult and yeah. and the lack of desire for younger people to come along and replace yeah. those of us that are older as we as we move on um i i, I see so many um older oil and gas operators that they're they're they are at retirement age yeah. or and they're wanting to pass along their their uh producing leases their kids don't want anything to do with the business at all yeah um and they can't find anyone interested in taking on the leases yeah. Yeah. and and i i i hear that a lot yeah and I don't know. It's yeah. just, unfortunately, there's been, uh, certain people have been successful in a negative portrayal of our business. And that's going to be really difficult to overcome yeah. when you have an entire generation of young people that think that. 
Yeah. It's just going to be really difficult. That is very, very true. And that's a, that's a major challenge for our industry is to overcome that. Yeah. One of the uh, interesting, oh, it's already 1243. Can you believe that? <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, I would love to talk to you all day about these kinds of things, one of which we can talk offline, but uh, the burden of royalties on leases is, is definitely a big deal for shallow oil. You got stuff that's held from 50 years ago that they're getting 15%, you know, because someone signed over that deal that that's heavily burdening the economics of these shallow oil fields. So some of that stuff, if they can't, if you can't get that adjusted uh, today and get it more fairly back towards the operator's direction, then yeah, that lease is getting crushed you yeah. know, economically and, and it's not going to, it's not going to continue. Um, I really, really enjoyed this show, the conception, the drill down, the completion, Marky e. Thompson. Thank you for joining the PB podcast. It was absolutely my pleasure to be here and uh, uh, share some thoughts with you on, the, on our business that we both love. <laughs>